0: This is an Encore presentation of Healthcare Rounds. Today, we are rebroadcasting episodes 44 and 46 with Dr. David Hong, Associate Vice President of Clinical Research at MD Anderson Cancer Center. This episode was originally uploaded on
1: April 11, 2019.
0: Welcome to Healthcare Rounds, the podcast serving you the ins and outs of health policy and business topics, as well as our take on the rapidly evolving healthcare delivery ecosystem. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and Faculty Associate at the W.P. Carey School of Business and the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. (music) This week, I'm speaking with Dr. David S. Hong, Deputy Chair of Investigational Cancer Therapeutics at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he also serves as Associate Vice President for Clinical Research and Clinical Medical Director of the Clinical Center for Targeted Therapy. Dr. Hong received a bachelor's degree in biology from Yale University and a medical degree from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He completed an internship and residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and a medical oncology fellowship at MD Anderson, during which time he was appointed Chief Medical Oncology Fellow. In 2005, he joined MD Anderson's faculty. Dr. Hong is the recipient of many awards, including the 2004 Young Investigator Award from the American Society of Clinical Oncology. He has published more than 270 articles in peer-reviewed journals. So um, to kick us off, tell me a little bit about your role uh, within MD Anderson.
1: So I am the deputy director of what's called the Department of Investigational Cancer Therapeutics. It's a specific unit within MD Anderson dedicated to doing early drug development studies in, in cancer. And these studies are really the first in human studies, oftentimes phase ones. Uh, they have evolved in some sense um, over the last several years, um, but they're the first steps after animal testing that goes into cancer patients, and so we run that unit or department within the institution. And I'm also the associate vice president of clinical research, uh, and in that role, I, I, I play a number of different roles. Uh, I do a number of things. One is one of the important things. I think one of the challenges I think um, in academic medicine is is you know we have large bureaucratic infrastructures and trying to get some of these trials up and running as quickly as possible. And I'll talk a little bit about that in context of how clinical trials are changing, but also some of these emerging challenges overall in oncology drug development. It's, it's been a challenge for us here to get trials up and running fast, but we, we have just recently really implemented some key um, changes as, that has uh, allowed us to shrink our timelines. And I'm involved in a number of things in that role. I I help with managing grants, the internal grants that are being distributed to junior investigators, and I'm involved in kind of going through our clinical trials process here. We have a huge number of studies. We have close to 3,000 trials at Anderson, different trials, whether it's survey or treatment trials, and so a lot of kind of details I have to go through in trying to help manage the clinical trial infrastructure here at Anderson, which is one of the, probably, I would argue, probably one of the largest in the world.
0: So anybody who's watching the pharmaceutical industry uh, has noticed a surge in cancer drug approvals in recent years. And some of these drugs are showing remarkable results. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to speak with you, uh, was to get your insight from a research perspective, how and why things have changed. And can you talk about What's new in the last five to 10 years and
1: why the research landscape is so different today? Good question. One, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's been really a record number of kind of new molecular entities and orphan drugs, both uh, new and also generics and biosimilars in 2018. There was a total of what I'll call 76 new indications for uh, new drugs in cancer over the last five years. And Right now, um, there is close to a thousand, a thousand two hundred different agents or new molecular entities in clinical trials as of 2018. But that's been that's been growing over the last uh, you know decade. In 2008, there was about 750, but it's been slowly climbing. Now it's close to 1,200. And why is that? Well, part of that is, is, to a large extent, is because we are reaping the harvest of molecular science and investment that has been, and discoveries that have been uh, implemented over uh, the last several decades, right? Dr. Hanahan and, and Dr. Weinberg are scientists in oncology who wrote this a seminal uh, review uh, called um, the Hallmarks of Cancer. And their first publication was in 2000. At that time, they had listed the classic hallmarks. There were six hallmarks of cancer. But they republished their publication again in 2011, and they added an additional four hallmarks of cancer, particularly avoiding immune destruction. That was one of their emerging hallmarks. Uh, Since then, the discovery and underpinning of the understanding of how cancer is so destructive has led to ways to target it. So you know, I'm in Texas, so we talk about oil a lot, right? <laughs> right. And uh, we had we had a fracking event in 2011, and that fracking event, uh, that new technology was immunotherapy, and that was the first time when uh, epilumab was approved in melanoma, and soon afterwards we had um, a number of. Uh, new immunotherapy uh, agents, uh, particular PD-1 inhibitors that augmented the, the C- anti-CTLA-4 ipilimumab that led to obviously even more activity and, and also then has emerged other things such as CAR T cells, et cetera. These numbers are probably out of date, but as of March of 2017, there was close to 1,122 cancer immunotherapy combination trials. Wow. Again, this is in the individual agents I talked about the 1,200 agents in 2018. So there's been a, really an explosion of uh, new trials, new agents, and particularly in immunotherapy, it's really transformed the landscape for cancers that we never ever thought were going to be amenable to immunotherapy, such as lung, such as bladder. I mean, we we had some indication that melanoma was responsive to immunotherapy, such as IL-2, high-dose IL-2, but uh, those are oftentimes limited in, in really patients who could tolerate that drug, but these drugs are now, but they have some uh, side effects, have been relatively well tolerated. Third thing, beyond the new molecules, beyond immunotherapy, and number three uh, has really been in parallel to immunotherapy has been just the refinement and the ability to kind of molecularly phenotype uh, tumors. And that's all the way from things like uh, BRCA mutations, which we knew for a long time, but until just recently had been able to target patients with BRCA mutations with what are called PARP inhibitors. And also other mutations that are relatively rare, but are truly transformative, such as n fusions. I was involved in the the phase one, but also uh, the uh, New England Journal phase uh, two and uh, kind of Paper that was pivotal, or the studies that were pivotal in the approval of what's called larotrectinib, which is the first NTREC fusion inhibitor. And what's unique about this approval was that it was approved across all tumor types, irregardless of the type of cancer you had, as long as you had an NTREC fusion. And so this was really the second type of drug that was approved, uh, what's called independent of histology or tumor type. The first was actually. Uh, what's called pembrolizumab, one of the immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors, in a subset of tumors called MSI-high. I'm coining this phrase, but I, I'm sure if you talk with other experts, they would say it truly is kind of this golden era of uh, oncology drug development that we haven't seen for a while. So that that uh, personalization
0: that you're talking about, I had a, I was at a conference and I, there were two doctors, one that was. Really strong on clinical pathway development and the other one that was speaking about um, more of the precision medicine and it was really interesting to see these like two different perspectives, not that they're mutually exclusive, but seeing these these two physicians talk about the advantages of ver- either standardization or personalization. I don't
1: know what, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with you they're not mutually exclusive, and um, both of them. Are valuable in in many ways. I think they will intersect as we become more personalized. So in personalized therapy, I think one of the the reason that this is happening more and more is because actually you know profiling molecularly profiling tumors have become much much cheaper. I remember when I was a resident in I think it was it was around 2002, Francis Collins. I think Bill Clinton and um, Craig Ventor made an announcement. I think it was on like national TV that, that they had uh, done some, uh, done this incredible uh, profiling of a human uh, whole exome sequencing or whole genomic sequencing of uh, a person's uh, whole genome, right? And I remember the reporters saying that it was a mere $2 billion to, to make this happen, right? <laughs> it wasn't, to be honest with you, and what what they didn't really fully tell, it was that they hadn't actually done, I think it was only the exomes, I, I may be incorrect here, but they hadn't really fully uh, profiled everything. It was, they had profiled the vast majority of that genome. And and that technology has gotten increasingly better and cheaper than even silicon chips, you know, there's that Moore's law, right? And you can get online now and you can get your whole exome sequence or a whole genome sequence for like under a thousand bucks, right? And so that technology has just incredibly evolved to the point where, you know, we are, uh, you know, routinely getting that and all of our patients here in MD Anderson, you know, CMS recently made that uh, announcement that they would pay for the, um, mutational profile. And there have been some uh, incredible examples, like the larotrectinib example that I mentioned to you, that truly have shown that the advantages of kind of profiling tumors, et cetera. There are still skeptics. Uh, many of the skeptics would argue that only um, a percentage of the patients, or maybe even a small percentage of those patients, may actually benefit from personalized therapy. But that's an assumption that uh, that's assuming the current technology and the current drugs will stay the same. And obviously that, in my opinion, is short-sighted. We will develop new drugs and there will be more and more knowledge and mutations that this personalized therapy approach, I suspect, will be much more an approach that we can follow. And this is being borne out, particularly in lung cancer, where lung cancer, for example, has really been being sliced into smaller pies as to targeted therapy. So it's important to note that 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 trend in technology and processes will continue. And I suspect that, you know, five years from now, there'll be many more targeted therapies, many more patients who may benefit from personalized therapy than, than there are right now. But the vast majority of patients are still kind of using standard, you know, chemotherapy and for example, the NCCN guidelines are a very good guideline as to how we treat patients all the way from early stage to later stage. And so they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, I helped develop uh, something called the VIC protocol or the Vamirafen and Ren-T-Cancetuximab protocol. And that's actually a combination targeted therapy plus um, chemotherapy regimen that we uh, we identified high activity, and benefit in patients with BRAF V600E colorectal cancer. That has been now incorporated into the NCCN guidelines for colorectal cancer, and that is a pathway in which uh, oncologists use to make determinations as to how to treat patients. So these aren't mutually exclusive uh, uh, pathways. I suspect, though, that you know not just five years from now, 10 years or even further down the line... There may be even more uh, nuanced ways, more complex ways in which we identify pathways and personalized pathways, whether it's using um, AI, right, and it, utilizing things like whole genome profiling to identify drugs that may cause too much toxicity or may actually, and also end benefit. The data that we use in the context of profiling tumors or using uh, profiling patients, is really to determine which patients may actually benefit rather than which patients may actually gain toxicity. So all of that is going to be incorporated in the future uh, to make maybe even personalized pathways. So there may be really a a convergence of both of those uh, processes.
0: Interesting, I noticed that you actually publish, MD Anderson actually publishes all of your pathways uh, on, on the website. Why I find that's remarkable is as as part of our research into different institutions, I often run into people who uh, i don't know if the word is proprietary maybe it's they're they're secretive about their pathways within their organization, which I don't understand why that would be the case i mean certainly m d anderson is uh, as i said publishing them for the world so i had a a, a recent conversation with another academic institution where Many of their docs see their careers advancing through research and publishing. And sometimes, at least according to this person, they struggle to get them to spend time with patients. Obviously, MD Anderson is known for world-class care as well as being a renowned research institution. Do Do you find it difficult to do both well? Do you face the same kind of challenges with your physician researchers?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that's uh, an increasing challenge uh, given the current reimbursement environment. But you know, if you look at the vast majority of revenue and uh, what you need to kind of cover operating costs, I think eighty-five to ninety percent of that still comes from clinical revenue. Don't don't quote me on that. I don't think I know the exact number, but it's it's around there, right? So the other like 7%, I think, is like is research, NCI, NIH sponsors, et cetera. The other 3% is philanthropy. So we know, I think most uh, academic centers recognize where their bread is being buttered. Sure. They, you know, continually push academic departments and chairs to ensure that they meet their clinical revenues targets. But as an academic institution, and in order to attract people who are interested in research, you as a chair need to kind of balance all of that and ensure that, you know, you have some time to do research. But I will tell you that it is becoming increasingly more difficult. I mean, I you know, if you don't have a grant in some of our departments here, you know, you're seeing patients four days a week. And that's essentially the same same amount of clinical effort you put in usually in a private practice. You do four days a week and then you have a day off to try to catch up and follow patients and order sets, orders and stuff like that. Right. The challenge though is for an academic centers is that they can't pay them, pay these oncologists or pay the physicians as much as they, as they will get in private practice. Right. So if you increasingly make it equivalent you know, time that you're spending just on doing clinical care as you would do in a group practice or outpatient practice without, you know, giving them time to do research, then, you know, what incentive is there to stay in an academic institution? And I've seen that happen with a number of my colleagues who actually graduated from MD Anderson Fellowship, which I did, went off to academia, brilliant people who were you know had really promising early careers, got ASCO CDAs, et cetera, or ASCO Young Investigator Awards, but their ins- respective institutions would require them to see a lot more clinical care than they initially signed up for. And eventually they just said, you know, what's the point? You know, and they leave. And usually they leave for two areas: one is private practice or industry. I'm seeing more and more colleagues of mine leaving for industry, that is pharmaceutical companies, etc., who need oncologists, who need uh, these experts to help them develop their molecules. So I I don't know the answer. What is the right answer to how do you make this balance? I think it's a very, it's a big challenge for chairs and administrators to try to ensure that academics have some time because, you know, you can't do research with like uh, one day a week off, I really, I, it's really hard because, you know, you're spending some of that time already, already on clinical care, follow up with patients, et cetera. Um, and to try to actually write papers, write protocols, be on teleconferences or run a lab, it's almost impossible. And so you have to give some margin of time to For these researchers but understandably if these researchers are not bringing in grants or bringing in protocols or funding you know institutions are losing money on every single one of them right Mm. i'm not entirely sure uh which direction this is going to end up going for academics here in the united states i think there are different challenges particularly if you're outside the united states but i'm seeing more and more trials actually moving outside the united states for a number of reasons one it's cheaper for drug companies to actually do trials outside the United States. And two, you know, there are more investigators or clinical trialists who know how to run a clinical trial or even even early clinical trials uh, in Asia, in Europe, in Eastern Europe particularly. And so companies are moving uh, towards there. So uh, some of these new novel agents may not become available for uh, patients here in the United States in the in the future.
0: So, finally, just to wrap things up, before I got on the call, I saw a New York Times ProPublica article about a another cancer center where they've had some issues with conflicts of interest, and I don't need you to comment on on that. You may be aware of it, but but rather, how do you partner with industry and? What's pharma's role as a partner in research and caring for patients?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Pharma is, I would argue, uh, instrumental at least in the in the clinical aspect of research. I think the NIH and the NCI has a very obviously uh, central, strong role in preclinical research. And and to some extent, uh, pharma is having increasingly, uh, there, there are needs for pharma to also have an increasing role or biotech to have, pharma and biotech to have a role and also preclinical research. Most of the drugs that are currently approved in the United States was not developed by the government. It was developed by the pharmaceutical industry. The vast majority of new drugs, whether it's an oncology, those 73 indications came from drug companies who invested and poured, I would argue, billions of dollars into research. Now, one can argue, I'm not going to argue about drug pricing, which is, I think, complicated sure. and nuanced here. But part of the reason that they're able to do research is the money that they have poured into uh, this area. We do have collaborations with the NCI in doing clinical trials with them. But the vast majority of of clinical trials that are done in this country and in the world are conducted by pharmaceutical companies. And what what I think ProPublica and some of the other kind of venues that are kind of trying to vet out this conflict of interest, they may or may not realize this is is that this research probably would not be conducted if it wasn't for pharma trying to get drugs approved and investing the money in order to try to get these drugs approved. Clinical trials is an incredibly expensive endeavor, and that's also a very complicated reason as to why. But, you know, the numbers range from phase ones from $20 to $50 million uh, phase one, and then you get into a large phase, randomized phase two, it can run up to $100 million, and then doing an international phase three study can be up to $300 million. There's debate as to Uh, how much this whole process costs. But if you look at the Tufts Drug Institute, Joe DeMossi has been working in this area for decades and their data suggests that capitalized costs, that means the cost incurred to get one drug approved, which is usually a a 10% likelihood of a drug, one drug that only one drug out of 10 that gets into the clinic gets approved that capitalized cost is probably $3 billion or more. Um, again, one can debate as to why these drug costs are so high, but without pharma, the, the United States government does not have that kind of cash to invest in research and getting new drugs out there. So fortunately or unfortunately, that's just kind of the nature of uh, the reality of drug development at this time.
0: Well, and, and pharma wouldn't be able to... Implement those trials unless they were in partnership with
1: the MD Andersons of the world, right? I mean, yes and no. Increasingly, pharma is moving outside of academia. There's uh, one of the largest clinical trials units in the world, or in the United States at least, is something called Sarah Cannon Cancer Center. And they're not necessarily affiliated with a university, Uh, they're part of HCA, a dedicated oncology practice that is really kind of focused on clinical trials in oncology. And they are a juggernaut in oncology clinical trials, but they're not affiliated with any university of any sort. And so that that allows them to have low lower overhead costs and also uh, allows them to have faster implementation of clinical trials, which which always leads to decreased research costs, right? So to date, we know on average from a Throughout getting into the clinic and getting approved still takes about eight years before uh, FDA approval. Things have gotten faster in the last couple of years. But, you know, the last paper I read on this still, the average was like eight to nine years. And so if you're, for example, a small biotech, you are burning through incredible amounts of cash to pay for your staff, the clinical trials, et cetera. And so, the faster you get that up and running and completed, the better. Um, and so, MD Anderson's and um, Dana Farber's MSKCC—they're still very important in the clinical trial infrastructure. But there are other alternatives that drug companies and pharma are looking at, not including Sarah Cannon, but also outside of the United States. So there are other entities now outside of the United States that are also doing these kind of clinical trials now. You know the FDA essentially their mandate is is that you know as long as the data is good, right, and it's it's been audited and vetted and it appears good, they're not going to necessarily disapprove a drug because it's not done at MD Anderson or Sloan Kettering.
0: Right, they just want to make sure that the right protocols have been followed and all of the essentials of running a clinical trial is done properly. Essentially, so uh, you're all in competitions with each other for those
1: those clinical trials. Correct. I mean. Ideally, we should we shouldn't be in competition, right? Ideally, we should all be working together towards uh, you know getting these trials up and running and completed for our cancer patients. But there is some level of competition. I would both really academic competition, but also trying to get slots for patients who are at your institution.
0: I wanted to pick up where we left off on our discussion of pharma and the cost to bring a drug to market. I think you, you threw out a figure of something like $2 billion. That's the number that I, I've seen, something around that. And we were talking offline about the decisions that pharma companies need to make, whether to even enter clinical trials or to move from phase one to two, or two to three, bring a drug to market, so on. Every, stage of the, every step of the way, in those stages, a decision needs to be made, a go-no-go no go decision. What are your thoughts on that process and the the issues that people think about when making
1: those decisions? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. So I, I had that same question to my colleagues in pharma. And so I actually pitched a, a educational session on this very topic, and we titled it The Art and science of go-no-go no go decisions in oncology drug development. And the reason we titled that is, is because I, it's not a science scientific process, right? There are many different factors that make a decision about whether a drug will move into, not only into the clinic, but from each step in the process. And there were three kind of industry veterans who were part of that educational session. If some of your audience were at AACR, they can log on to the ACR website, and actually it was recorded. Nancy Cole, who is, was kind of the head biologist or head chief scientific officer at Blueprint Biology, she's now a consultant for a number of uh, companies, institutions. The second person was David Felquait, who is the head of early drug development at BMS. And the last person was Sandra Horning, who's the chief medical officer at Genentech. And so, you know, I pose this question to all three of them. How do you make these decisions in each step from the preclinical to the early and to the late? Nancy, you know, obviously uh, shared there are a number of key decisions. Is there activity in certain models? Can you actually create a molecule that will have the right stability and characteristics in a CLIA environment that we can, and can you scale it, right? Can you make enough drugs so that you can get this into the clinic? And what, in the context of all of this, you know, what are your competitors out there? What uh, drugs are already uh, in that space? Dave had a really interesting perspective. He's a huge fan of this economist named Tversky. Who was a behavioral economist who won the Nobel Prize, and that, I, and and really believe that in complex decision processes, you really need clear try to make as much objective decisions as possible outside of your own personal kind of agendas. I think we're all, whether it's in to some extent in science, but also in complex decision process such as drug development, you're all. We all have biases, right? Sure. And Dave has tried, at least in his processes, to eliminate that by looking at certain... uh, He's actually got an algorithm where he looks at certain uh, characteristics of that molecule in clinic, so in early trials. So does this, is there activity, is there, does this uh, inhibit what we think it does in biomarkers? Uh, both what's called proximal biomarkers and distal biomarkers and what level of activity are we seeing is this safe or less toxic in human beings all these criteria he he kind of posed and he uses somewhat of an algorithm to make to help the, their team make decisions sandra was much more broad and you know she posed a, a number of uh, challenges i think that the industry is facing and that is you know we have gone from this period of scarcity where we had very few drugs entering the, into the clinic now with a huge abundance of new trials and new molecules what's challenging for somebody like Sandra Horning is there is a lot of competition out there right there are at least there's already five approved PD1 or PDL1 inhibitors there's another 10 in the in, in the space you know, where do you go, right? There are multiple agents in every single class. How do you proceed? And so uh, she just posed a lot of questions. And for them, I think, how do you navigate the process in the context of the larger challenges such as patient enrollment, research costs? How much is this going to cost us to eventually get an approval I would argue, the, the regulatory framework. And she brought up the regulatory framework, which has has really changed over the last several years. And I, I give credit to our colleagues at the FDA. They've really tried to look at alternative ways to get drugs approved in a way that we hadn't seen before. Things like the breakthrough indication, histology agnostic trials, real world data, etc., and so I think a lot of what Sandra and what a, a large pharma and so forth are doing is, is how do you navigate that? How do you best execute your go-no-go no decisions in that, in that environment? So yeah, so it is truly, I would argue, more of an art right now. There's not a If it was a science and it was easy enough that you, you did this and added this and mixed up this and you'd get an approved drug, we'd have a lot more drugs approved, but that's not the case at this time.
0: Follow-up question, and this is going to really show my lack of drug knowledge. <laughs> but in the in the simple, what I would call the simple space rather than in, in the biologics or in the cancer space, like let's say blood pressure drugs. In, in that space, you have your calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, alpha blockers. I'm trying to think I'm probably forgetting a few diuretics. Um, and it's always been my sense that physicians... View the category as the drugs in the category being relatively interchangeable, and how this relates to no-go decisions is, you know, once you hit the fifth ACE inhibitor, do we really need a, a sixth or a seventh or an eighth? And especially in in these days when you know formularies are, are tightening up and putting products in preferential positions. So my question is is it different in the world of oncology? Do you view products in a given category as being relatively interchangeable or does it go to our last conversation about precision medicine and maybe one particular drug is better than another?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, to date, most of these drugs are oftentimes approved in any specific indication. For example, you know, there, like I said, there's like five different PD1 inhibitors out there, PDL1 inhibitors, but each of them have taken different niches, right? So, for example, Durvalumab, which is this PDL1 inhibitor, I think AstraZeneca owns that, is approved in uh, from a, a large study, which was called the Pacific Trial, which was in the context of adjuvant therapy after chemo XRT, chemo radiation, uh, radiation in, in lung cancer patients. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm sure that there are other drug companies now like Merck and uh, BMS looking to use that space. But at this point, I don't think you can just ask you know your insurance company to add Nevo in that context of that setting because these drugs are so expensive, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to change out one ACE inhibitor for another, right? Right. And some of these drugs have only indications in certain specific disease states. So I think one of the, the reasons that there's not kind of interchangeability is that these drugs are so expensive. And specialty pharmacies are becoming much, much more strict about what indications, who can use it, in what setting, et cetera, et cetera you know, off-label use in this country is legal, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think the formation of the FDA, their their intent was never to tell doctors exactly how to use this drug. They were initially, you know, commissioned to really say, you know, which drugs are safe, right? But but because of the expense of these drugs, um, specialty pharmacies, insurance plans are becoming very strict about how, these drugs can be used and not used and what indications? And so I see that being different than just standard other drugs like ACE inhibitors, et cetera.
0: What implication
1: what implication does that have for biosimilars? Well, so biosimilars will, I think, will be increasingly be used. I think they they will have I mean, I mean, you know, it'll be a while before I think anybody can develop a biosimilar to some of these PD one inhibitors, but there's now biosimilars now rolling out for like rituximab, which has come off, I think, patent, and there's uh, other biosimilars for, for example, the GMCSF and GCSF analogs. So in those settings, those are pretty straightforward. I I don't think anybody's done large scale studies comparing, you know, the biosimilars as to whether they're any less in, sorry, inferior to like rituximab or whatever. Theoretically, they should be very, almost exactly the same, right? Because these molecules are are the, all by complex, the, you know, they're, they're very precise. So I'm assuming that they will have a role because the cost will go down. Um, they're not going down as much as like, you know, if you get a generic of an ACE inhibitor, partly because they're just much more difficult to make and more complex to make. I I do think that biosimilars will, and they are beginning, they are taking off. I mean, we, the institution here at MD Anderson, I think oftentimes uses biosimilars or buys biosimilars because they are cheaper than, than the other uh, standards. Uh, I think that that has been a good change for overall drug costs, but remember the patent life or at least the, the drug exclusivity rights of a drug, Right. Give it—I uh, forget exactly what the time point is—but give give it uh, uh, exclusivity for a long period of time. So I, uh, you know, Katruda or, or Nevo will have drug exclusivity for you know, many more years, and they're going to charge what the market will bear, right?
0: Right, right. As we talked about last time, the drug pricing is a very complicated. <laughs> uh, very trying to explain somebody how drugs are paid for in, in the U.S. is uh, and why they're priced the way that they are. It's
1: it's a it's a challenge. It is complicated. You know, I think that, and this is one of the things I posed in that that art, that educational session at ACR. I, I do think that you know, pharma is coming upon their kind of tobacco moment, right? Pharmaceutical companies used to be, I don't know if they ever, but they you know they weren't necessarily seen like the bad guys like tobacco companies, right? But then you have the whole Martin Sh- Shkreli story. You have this whole stories about the EpiPen. You now have the whole stories of the Purdue family. And then, you know, just recently, the CEOs of the pharma companies were all brought forward in front of Congress, right? If you look at, gosh, any survey, looking at particularly Medicare and Medicaid drug pricing and negotiations... You know, despite the fact that we as a country are divided about almost every major issue, the only thing that we're actually united about is drug pricing. Right. Republicans and Democrats, liberals and progressives and conservatives, they are. And I think that what's going to end up happening, whether it's Trump next, you know, in 2020 or whoever, there's going to be a push towards somehow, you know, allowing Medicare to negotiate prices. And I think if that happens, you know, the other uh, the other shoe falls, which is insurers will fall on that also. I mean, there is already uh, drug pricing negotiation going on, particularly with uh, uh, insurers companies. But I think that if Medicare pricing comes into the play, it's going to drive down costs even more. And so drug companies are going to have to figure out how do they, you know, given the increasing research costs and maybe likely drug reimbursements going downwards, you know, how do they make decisions based upon that, right? And they, you know, as much as we'd like to think that drug companies purely make decisions on science alone and uh, efficacy of drugs, they don't. They have to be fiduciaries to their stockholders and they have to make decisions based that that will make revenue,
0: right? Yeah. And I think today it's it's an even bigger issue, but the the example that I used to use is um, Zithromax, so azithromycin. Now, granted, we're talking a, a much, much lower scale in terms of dollars, but I, I always used to say pharma has a hard time selling value. You know, here you have, you can take for your sinusitis, you can take penicillin or moxicillin three times a day for 10 days. Not sure if that's exactly accurate, but if you look at the z pack you know, you load up on the first day and then you take something for four more days and you're, it's, it's much more convenient. You're much more likely to be compliant. But when you go to the pharmacy and you see this, and I know it's off patent now, but you see this and you say, well, wait a minute, I'm going to pay $70 or this costs $100 for six pills. And people just think, and it's the same kind of thing with the Gilead drug or suite of drugs for hep C. People look at that and they, and they, they just say, the value can't be there for what I'm getting. And, and I just I don't disagree at all, by the way, that they're having their tobacco <laughs> moment here with a string of these kinds of things hitting the news. And I also think that they just haven't done, as an industry, a good job explaining the value of, of what it is that they bring to the table.
1: I agree. I, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a part of the larger story of healthcare here in the United States. Right. I don't know what the right answer is. I, I definitely envy some aspects of like kind of centralized managed systems like Canada or in Europe, but at the same time, like, I will tell you the number of clinical trials the number amount of research that's being done here in the United States, the number of drugs that are available are not available to cancer patients in Canada or the UK. You know, UK uh, has something called the NICE system, right? Which is a committee that makes decisions based upon the value of a, a life year, right? Whether or not that drug is going to be a value to a cancer patient. You know, how do you put a price on that? I. It's hard to put a price. In my opinion, it's hard if it's, especially if it's your... If your wife or your son or whoever, right? If a committee, a government committee, says we know that this drug can extend, possibly extend the life of uh, somebody by six months, but we don't think that is enough for us as a government to pay. Well, that's a curve, right? That's a that's a curve. Some of those patients who may benefit six months may also benefit five years, right? It's 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 that tail end, but there, there's still that chance. I I don't know if Americans are going to want to to make those kind of decisions or want somebody in a central government to make that kind of decision, right? And there are a number of health economists, as we all know, who argue, you know, there are three things in healthcare, and it's, it's different than most other economic kind of markets. One is quality, availability, and then cost. And most health economists would argue you cannot have all three. It is very hard to have all three, even in socialized systems like the you know, UK or Canada. Their costs are skyrocketing, right? And so it's a balance, and I it's it's one of those things where I, I, I it'd be hard for me to see consumers here in the United States say, "Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait three months for my uh, hip replacement." Right? Or, or you know what? I'm not going to get that latest drug because you know it's too costly. The government says it's too costly. But- now you could have a two-tier system, where those who could pay into that system, you know, have a private insurance, which does occur in like Canada and to some extent in other countries. But at the same time, also I could see just an uh, uproar about the inequality of something like that. It, inevitably, it would draw inequalities because no matter how much you know money you pour into a system like healthcare, which we're pouring tons of money into, there's still going to be inequalities. So. I don't know the right answer to it, John. I don't have the answer either. I certainly have my my opinions.
0: I mean, the reality is, using the Canada or Canadian example and in, in the UK, I would imagine that the people that you see down at MD Anderson who come from those countries are wealthy, right? I mean, <laughs> they have the ability to to come to you know top medical. Institution and have their care, and, and and no matter what direction we go in, it's I don't see that changing.
1: Yes, yes, and no. I mean, I you know I can't speak to the full population of patients that come to MD Anderson. I we definitely do a lot of kind of indigent care here in the Houston community because it's a Texas mandate. But you're correct in the sense that a lot of patients who do come here from outside of Houston have the resources to come, right? Especially if you're from another country we're seeing a whole lot of patients actually coming from China. You know, it's a socialized system in China. There's a, it's a kind of a videography essay on Chinese healthcare. It is abysmal about what's going on there. And there's, there is going to, there likely is probably already a two-tiered system, but the system currently of those who get socialized healthcare there is, is abysmal. I mean, it's just, it's just really sad uh, on that article. But we are seeing, yes, we are seeing lots of, plenty of patients from other countries coming here. It's because a lot of them are from socialized countries, right?
0: We have the the best, potentially the best care here in, in the U.S. But then there's the question about, well, why is it that we're not at the top of the list in outcomes in just about every yeah. category that you look at? Why is that?
1: Well, so so in cancer care, we actually are better than like socialized systems like UK and so forth. If you look at life- expectancy and so forth. I I think it's far more complex than just, oh, you know, our healthcare system. I mean, you think about health. Health is the human body's health is a very complex system, right? I mean, like we Americans eat crap. (laughs) And if you were to, seriously, if you were to bring the full Japanese population here to our healthcare system, I bet our life expectancies would be a lot better, right? Because the Japanese eat much healthier than us. They weigh a lot less than us. They have probably habits that are better than us. But we Americans e- eat a lot of fatty fried food and we, you know, we're overweight, right? And we overwork, by the way. I think a lot of people like to compare healthcare systems by those outcomes saying, you know, app- apples to oranges, but uh, apples to apples. But that's not true because our populations are entirely different. You know, a lot of the socialized systems exist in very smaller countries. You know, Sweden, whatever. I mean, they have populations. I mean, like, I think, I think, is it uh, Norway has this uh, has or Finland has the population of Houston, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I didn't. I didn't think yeah, of it that And way. so, how do you how do you come and you say, well, you know, they're they they have such higher ex, uh, life expectancies. Well, you know, that's hard to compare three hundred million to five million population. You know. And a much more heter- a much more homogeneous population relative to heterogeneous population, and so you know I kind of oftentimes take those kind of comparisons with somewhat grain of salt because I don't think that you can just throw the United States population and say, well, you know, th- therefore the healthcare system is failing them. I totally agree that there are definite aspects and criticisms of the current modern our American modern healthcare system that is failing. The American populace, but there's also many aspects of American healthcare that is truly benefiting us as a nation, particularly in innovation. If you talk with people in pharma, uh, well, to a large extent, and I'm not saying that this is uh, the major reason, but you know, a lot of the research costs are borne by the fact that we have higher drug prices here in the United States. You're right? You know, people don't want to say it, and but that's the truth, right? You know, if you say, okay, we're going to now not allow drug companies to make profits or whatever, will the money flowing into research decline? I I bet it will. I'm just making my best assumption. It probably likely will. Will they make it up by uh, increasing prices in Canada and the UK and other places? I doubt it because those governments will just say, no, we're not going to pay, you know, more. Right. Right. They've already made those agreements. I'm not sure what the right answer is. We haven't cured cancer, right? and we still need new drugs. And, we, and as many new drugs are out there, we need to, you know, I, every day I, you know, I see patients who are dying, right? I mean, most of my patients, despite these new drugs, die on me. And, and it's easy to say, I think, if you're a critic, when you don't have a, a mother or a, a father or a, a wife or a child who's suffering from cancer to say, you know what, it costs too much. And we should make sure that the drug companies don't make any profits or just reasonable profits. But when you have somebody who has cancer, it's not that easy to say.
0: No, I lost both my parents to cancer, different types of cancer, and watched them in the last days of, of their their lives. And it was horrible. You know, I, I don't need to tell you. You see it every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been enlightening. Uh, yet again i'm sure we could talk for another half an hour but i think uh i'd be wearing out my welcome dr hong thank you
1: you know this is obviously our opinion piece obviously this is my opinion not the opinions of dr right. anderson so please right. put that in but yeah it's it's fun it's just fun talking about this this is stuff that i have a passion for you know ultimately you know you know why i do what i do is because i i, I really want to help our patients and ultimately i really believe that clinical research particularly new innovations will transform not only cancer, but, uh, you know, health in general in the world. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm passionate about that. Thanks for interviewing me. You know, happy to do this again sometime, you know, I, at some point later in, uh, whenever you, uh, have this. And so happy to talk about other topics. That sounds great. Thanks again, Dr. Hung. It's terrific.
0: That's all for this week. From all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. If you haven't yet done so, please rate and review Healthcare Rounds wherever you listen to podcasts. Healthcare Rounds is produced by Diana Nikolic and engineered by Andrew Rojek. Theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group provides advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. To learn more about us, go to darwinresearch.com or send an email to insights at darwinresearch.com. Or if you'd like to get right to it, call us at 888 402 3465. See you next round.